Hey everybody, Ryan here, and I am thrilled to bring you another episode of Toxicologist vs. the Internet, today with special guest Dr. Adam Blumenberg. This is a really great episode. Dr. Blumenberg is not just an emergency physician and medical toxicologist, but also has developed a number of free medical or toxicology education software programs and hosts his own podcast about toxicology, Toxic History. We kick the show off talking about some of the initiatives that Adam has brought into the talks community, and then we jump right into cases and questions, covering some unique and interesting topics, like what your differential should be for someone who injected 400 of something into themselves, what kind of things in a hospital garden should make you nervous if you find them in your patient's room, all the different ways illicit drug labs can explode, and a lot more. For those listeners who want to skip the chit-chat and get right to the cases, you can jump to minute 23. For everyone else, I hope you can listen along for some great toxicology conversation. But before we dive in, our standard disclaimers apply. We're going to be answering questions on the internet from people who may be trying to use drugs for the wrong reasons. Anyone using illicit drugs is exposing themselves to risks of potential contaminants, wide dose fluctuations, and toxicities of the drug itself. While this gives us a medium to explore toxicologic concepts, we are not advocating for anyone to use illicit drugs. If you are struggling with substance use, call 1-800-662-4357 to access the SAMHSA free helpline and get the care you deserve. Second, we're going to be talking about real fatalities, and while this allows us to discuss a lot of great learning points, some of these were intentional fatalities. If you or a loved one are struggling with thoughts of suicide, someone's there to listen. 1-800-273-8255 is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Please call. Finally, even though we're going to be discussing medical management, treatment, and diagnosis, this podcast is intended for educational purposes only, and we are not providing medical advice. If you think you're being poisoned or you have a general healthcare question, call your primary care provider or reach out to your local poison center at 1-800-222-1222. Now, without further ado, let's get on with the show. Everybody, you are listening to The Poison Lab, a show about poisoning for people who manage poisoning. I'm your host, clinical toxicologist and emergency medicine pharmacist, Ryan. And this is a very special episode, another rendition of Toxicologist versus the Internet. And with me today, I have a guest that I'm really excited to have on the show, Dr. Adam Blumenberg. And uh, Dr. Blumenberg, would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. Uh, and thank you so much, Ryan, for having me. I'm, I'm a big fan of the show. I've been listening to it for the last year pretty consistently. It's it's a favorite of mine. So I'm, uh, I'm an ER doctor and a toxicologist, and I'm based in New York City. Uh, I work at uh, Columbia University in Upper Manhattan, where I also live. It's a wonderful community. It's a wonderful place to be. See a lot of toxicology both in and out of the hospital. You know, New York City is one of these kind of special places where you have people who kind of come from all over the world, lots of different characters. And we see toxic plants, we see, you know, pharmaceuticals, we see um, unofficial par- pharmaceuticals, maybe that's kind of the way to describe it, <laughs> as well as uh, substances of abuse just kind of out uh, in New York. Um, so it's a pretty unique place. Yeah. Tox is anywhere there are humans and you have a high density of humans there, so. That makes a lot of sense. Is that a poison uh, museum behind you? Of course. Yeah. And it's full of goodies. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, man, where to begin? I actually, you'll appreciate this. I got 
this at a flea market and it's an old pharmacy stock container oh nice yeah and i don't know if you can read it, it says is that Mithridata. oh yeah the king of poisons so hold on is that theriacs and mithridatums that we're talking about here yeah 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 Mithridates, the poison king who mm-hmm. was obsessed with not dying of poison, so he tried to make all these antidotes, and that was the first antidote, really, right? Mithridata, or was that a theriac? I don't remember. But. Yeah, it was, I think, just a mix of all these random substances that probably didn't help a whole lot. Oh, yeah, but that was like the birth of the juice cleanse, basically. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think that's actually a good tie-in that kind of... <laughs> It's exactly what it sounds like. Yeah. Like it. it just kind of that... makes you go, you feel different, and you must have been cured. Right. Exactly. Well, that's that's wonderful. Yeah, who you can't be a toxicologist without a museum. Mine is upstairs in my uh living room, but nice. I've got some fun ones there. Mad honey. Oh um, yeah. A couple empty vials of Thai green pit viper snake antivenom that we used on a patient. Oh, that's cool. I try to hold on to any any antidote that I get to use at bedside. I I try to keep. Yeah, uh, got a broken phosphostigmine cool vial in there. Something. Oh yeah, yeah. They're not making that anymore. Probably anytime soon, huh? But probably ever. Acorn, oh. the manufacturer, mm-hmm. just announced that they're they're closing their plant. Wow. There's no longer any manufacturers of phosphostigmine. I don't know if somebody else can pick up their recipe, but it's at this point it's going to be gone because they're the only place that made it in the U.S. That's really too bad. I mean, it's just not going to be available to all these patients who need it. And and we're going to have generations of trainees who have no experience with it. Right. It's a bummer. Uh, I'm hoping somebody can pick it up. I also think Acorn made calcium disodium editate. So yeah. I'm a little nervous about that, too, because that's been gone for a long time. But. Yeah. Okay. So for the listeners, Dr. Blumenberg is also involved in a number of really fascinating and great educational uh, toxicology activities. Uh, not why I invited him on the show. I actually have an anecdote for that that I'd like to share in a minute. But but I really want to talk about the great stuff that you're also doing. So first, you have your own podcast, uh, Toxic History. Would you mind commenting on what that is and where, where you can hear it? Uh, that's right. Yeah, thanks. Um, so um toxic history is a a podcast and a youtube series about events from the history of poison uh and i host and moderate it uh and invite different toxicologists and physicians and pharmacists to speak on the podcast about just events of poisoning history so for example the first episode is about the oregon state hospital poisoning disaster there's an episode devoted to the history of toxicology in classical music There's another episode about the Iraqi grain poisoning disaster. Um, And so we have these specialists and experts who are telling these narrative medicine stories, but from the point of view of toxicology. I've listened and I really enjoyed the last one I listened to was about an expedition um, leading to, I believe it was the ingestion of polar bear livers, which then led to, I don't know if it was polar bears, but then led led to hypervitaminosis A and all sorts of problems from that. I remember that one being really interesting. That's an awesome episode. Yeah. And I'm so sorry to say, I think it was actually dog livers. Oh, which, no. <laughs> no, which, which I, I'm a big dog fan. So it's, it's a, it's a heartbreaking one to hear. Yes. Yeah. And then a number of other really cool educational things that you have. So med, oh, I'm going to butcher this med sim simulator. Is that the uh, med sim studio? MedSim Studio. So this is for the listeners. I have used this and I really loved it. So th- this is a virtual 
program, and this is my interpretation of it, that allows you to basically do a lot of simulated cases. You can simulate vital signs imaging um, that would occur if, if you're doing like a medical sim case for someone. So the other day I ended up having a really fun experience where I pushed bicarb at the bedside for a patient with a wide QRS. It's actually from hyperkalemia, but it narrowed and it was really fun to see the end tidal CO2 rise and see the narrowing of the QRS. And I was like, I really love sharing those moments with learners. And I was like, I don't have this on video. I can't videotape the patient. So how do I do this? I actually used your medicine to recreate that moment where the QRS narrows and the end tidal CO2 is going up because uh, it demonstrates so many cool aspects of physiology, you know, bicarb turning into carbon dioxide and measuring it. And I thought it was super useful. So I really encourage people to go check that out. You can download it and it's free. I yeah, completely I free. Anything else you want to share about that program? Sure. Um, and, and I'm so glad to hear that you're using it to, to teach other clinicians and to kind of recreate these exciting cases. Um, so uh, where I work, I'm a simulation educator. I, I teach through SIM uh, several times per month doctors, nurses, pharmacists, residents, students, everyone who, who joins, uh, mostly what's called in situ sim, which is in the clinical space. So we actually run through these cases inside our resuscitation bay of RED. And so I developed this software MedSim Studio kind of out of a need to have a mobile way to display all this data, vital signs, ultrasounds, EKGs, chest x-rays, all the stuff that you need to, to teach your learners. And I wanted it in such a way that you could very quickly display that information and then get back to teaching. So I'm so glad to hear that you're using it because that's um, that's that's what it's there for. Yeah. And like you said, it's it's totally free. It's not a commercial product or anything. That's really wonderful. I'm curious. Did you I mean, did you code this thing yourself? How did you develop this? I did. Yeah. So I learned to code basic basic stuff in high school. Um, I took a year long C++ course and. I really enjoyed it. It was very math based, um, but I didn't really learn how to do anything with graphics or how to make it look nice or anything like that. And then uh, through college, med school and through residency, I learned a bit more detail basically through YouTube videos. You know, there's all these incredible teaching videos that are just available for free on YouTube um, and learned from from these Internet instructors a bit more advanced techniques about how to make software. And out of that came this particular software, MedSim Studio. And uh, one other piece of software, which I, I hate to uh, self-plug, but it's it's also free, not commercial. Uh, yeah, it's called uh, Tox Runner, which is a question bank app that's available for uh, toxicologists. That's a, Where does Runner come from? That's a good question. I, at this point, I don't even remember. I think it, it was meant that it runs questions, something like that. But That's awesome. Well, you know, there's a lot of information to know in toxicology. So anything that can help increase the retention there, that's wonderful. I got to pick your brain sometime. I, at, during COVID in March, um, I, I was like at home for 10 days because everything was shut down and I happened <clears> to have some time off from the ER. And I... Uh, kind of in a spurt of, I don't know what it was, inspiration or like unipolar hypomania. I don't know what, but <laughs> I learned to code HTML. I coded a shock video game, which I have, it's free. It's on our, on the website for the podcast. But where you oh, I checked it a, out. I like it. Yeah. And it, it kind of, it responds to all the, you know, like you put in the different pressers and yeah. so it, it's a 
kind of a, a calculator too, kind of a physiologic simula simulator. That thing was cool. It's basically a, a calculator. Yeah, I mean, there's a digital cardiovascular system with a couple of variables that are interplaying on each other. And then the vasopressors change those variables, which then change the other. So you can watch, you basically, you know, have to identify what shock it is. You get a, uh, you get to know their CVP, their cardiac output, their stroke volume, um, and their, and you can measure their systemic vascular resistance, which is fun. And then you see the effects all the pressures have on it. And I would love, it's just, the problem is it's so ugly. I need to figure out how to make it not so ugly. So one day, maybe I can pick your brain on that because that'd be really cool. But sure. uh, obviously you're involved in a lot of really fun things and putting out a lot of useful tools for the talks community. So thanks for that. But, but that is not why I invited you on the show. I, I knew I needed to invite you on the show after uh, the last episode of Toxicologist versus the Internet with uh, Dr. Emily Kiernan. And one of our questions, we were talking about drinking bong water that had been used with uh, methamphetamine. And we had a fun little discussion about, OK, well, you know, methamphetamine is not that water soluble. But the salt, you know, methamphetamine freebase is not that water soluble, but the actual salt, methamphetamine hydrochloride, which most people are actually using is pretty water soluble. So you can supersaturate those solutions, all those things. And then I got an email from you and it was one of the funniest emails I've ever read in my life, in my life. largely because I could tell you're a self kind of an experimenter. You like to solve things for yourself. And I think that's wonderful. But um, Dr. Blumenberg brought up the, uh, the fact that other drugs have free base and salt forms and, and, um, mentioned lidocaine is one of those drugs. So lidocaine hydrochloride is what you're usually going to find in your vial of lidocaine 1% in the ED. But um, if you actually add some base to that and raise the pH of your, of your solution, you can actually turn lidocaine back into the free base form of just pure lidocaine. And then you can evaporate off the solvent and have little lidocaine crystals. And uh, this email was complete with a picture of your recently crystallized lidocaine that you had managed to create. And uh, I was blown away. I thought it was really fun. All with products that you found right in the emergency department, I believe. <laughs> Yep, I'm not going to yep. say that you took them home. I don't know, it, but it was a... Uh, no comment on that, but you can yeah. save my stove in the background of the picture. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I was, I really appreciate it. And then another, I believe you also had a picture of some bupropion. That, oh, all right. People are going to get at me because I always say bupropion. It's bupropion that you, um, the extended release and sustained release that you had filed down to examine the... Um, different delayed release mechanisms and i thought that was a is this is this accurate am i telling this appropriately yeah no that's exactly right i was um i was just kind of curious about kind of what's in there because i think a lot of us are familiar with how these modified release preparations there's a lot of just engineering not even chemical engineering but physical engineering that goes into these capsules uh, and i was just curious how they're built so i i kind of took some fine grit sandpaper and filed them down until they were in the cross-section form and took high resolution close-up photos and obviously discarded the powder, but looked very closely at those kind of those pills in, in half profile to see what was in there. 
And um, you know, there's a there's a kind of a famous case report out there uh, that has photos of ghost capsules on the on, let's say on the other end after whole bowel irrigation <laughs> of the Proprion XL. Um, and they kind of look like a hollowed out M&M, &M. you know, there's that just kind of plastic cap. And you can really see that little ring of plastic material encasing the actual medicine. Uh, so that was kind of cool to see. It is really. I mean, some of those methods they use to create delayed release profiles are really fascinating. Yeah. I talk a lot. I pick the brains of our um, drug delivery kind of uh, PhDs at the pharmacy school a lot. And I love hearing what they have to say about you know, targeting, delivering medicine to different parts of the body, all sorts of really interesting things. Oh, I'd love to hear a little bit of a summary or takeaway from that, because that sounds really interesting. Oh, just trying to tag parts of the body and then create the drug with almost a immunoglobulin mm -hmm. or an antigen portion of the body that it can kind of seek out and attach to. There's, I, I mean, that's a very basic. No, that's, that's a, such a cool idea. One yeah. day. Yeah. You don't always have to give drugs to all organs, right? So maybe in the future, that'll change. Yeah. Well, uh, I really appreciate you joining the show. And after I saw your experiments, and actually that prompted a fun discussion. We were talking about the efficacy of lidocaine, yeah, whether it was more effective ionized or unionized largely, right? And you actually wrote a paper. Um, it kind of came from this uh, kind of this discussion we were having about the, the exactly this, the free base and the salt form of lidocaine. And I just... You know, you know how sometimes these kind of factoids stick in your mind from from years and years ago. One of the factoids that had stuck in my mind was that lidocaine and most local anesthetics don't work very effectively in tissue where the local pH is low. So, for example, infected tissue, it, you know, you're going to have some anesthetic effects if you're numbing up an abscess locally. Uh, but as a general rule, if you can do a, a more proximal nerve block or a ring block, that might be a little better. And you'll get some anesthesia if you numb it up directly, but it takes longer to kick in. I also remember learning that if someone swallows lidocaine because the you know, pH of the stomach is so low, it's unlikely to kind of soothe any kind of gastric ulcer pain, things like that. And um, one of the ways that some clinicians might get around this is to mix it with a little bit of sodium bicarbonate before injection. Personally, I've never done that, but I know some people, some docs have done that. Yeah. Um, and the reason, the presumed reason this happens is that the target of the lidocaine, the sodium channel, the the place where the lidocaine molecule actually binds to is on the intracellular surface. So it actually has to cross through the lipid bilayer and get inside the cytoplasm and bind to the channel from inside the cell. And because the lipid bilayer is lipid, if it's in its salt form, it's not going to be able to dissolve in the lipid bilayer very effectively. It has to be in its free base form. Right. And so that's that was kind of what prompted this kind of just train of thought. You know, how does the lidocaine actually get to its target site and how does that relate to pH? Then we got into the discussion, I believe, of the receptor disassociation constant. So there's that side of it where you have to be free bait. The more lipophilic you are, the more likely you are to access the receptor. But this is one of the old school teachings of lidocaine is a preferential antiarrhythmic in ischemia. Mm -hmm. Because if you give lidocaine, yes, the pH is going to be lower in the area of ischemia. So you're actually going to have more uh, protonated lidocaine, which is not going to get into that lipophilic cell layer and access the receptor. 
But the ones that do get into the receptor, they will actually then get protonated at the receptor site and their disassociation constant back into the lipophilic cell layer is lower then. So it's going to actually stay on the receptor site longer is the theory behind that. And that's kind of been shown in some rabbit heart tissues. So maybe it makes it um, to increase the pH a better local anesthetic because you get more rapid anesthesia, but a lower pH, better antiarrhythmic because you get a more that's long interesting. Anyways, that was a fun discussion that we had. And uh, I'm glad we could still remember it. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot to remember. So, okay, does it get protonated or unprotonated? Yeah, but it's, it's fun physiologic principles to think about. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's enough blabbering um, from us about fun things. Let's talk about other fun things. Oh, and first, just real quick, for anyone out there listening who wants to follow in the steps of Dr. Blumenberg, would you mind just giving us a quick, what brought you into toxicology in the first place? Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so I've always loved basic science, you know, uh, chemistry, clinical chemistry, uh, how the body works. And I've also always loved history and culture and society and how people work. And toxicology is just this amazing intersection within medicine between basic science and human behavior. The the strange things that we do as people, the strange things we do as societies, uh, disasters, um, as as well as just more kind of individual behaviors that uh, kind of really come down to what is biochemically going on in this person's body. Um, And that's something that's been kind of endlessly fascinating to me because it's it's so detailed and so specific as well as so broad. It's such an interesting intersection. And there's a lot going on right now. And and there's always a lot going on. But it seems like humans need to be present sometimes to cause some toxic entities. What we had in the last month, uh, there was a nitric acid spill in Arizona, I believe. Mm-hmm. We have vinyl chloride. Did you happen to see the movie white noise on netflix no i haven't what's okay. that about it's a very interesting film uh, but it basically centers around a train accident with this large looming airborne toxic event uh, um, and then all the people are leaving and it's kind of a satire but then here we have in ohio i mean you could look at a picture of the movie and a picture of ohio uh, east palestine and it looks identical it's wild but basically yeah in ohio we have this uh, vinyl chloride spill and oh man i feel so bad for people who had to evacuate but safety yeah. first uh and then what and then there was a metal factory explosion in ohio so uh, unfortunately yeah we we have a lot of advanced technologies but they come with risks and we are struggling to contain them sometimes but uh yeah humans society we create toxicity as well and as, as well as experience well that's wonderful um well i appreciate you joining us today and i'm excited to get to talk with you about some fun other topics seeing now that i've seen how your mind works already and it's it's, it's very impressive so i think we're going to dive in um to our cases right away uh so for the listeners this is where we go through Cases of fatal or potentially non-fatal poisoning um, sourced usually from the America's Poison Center's annual report or case report, anything you find that you think is interesting to, to bring up. And it, these were real cases of um, real fatalities or real serious uh, toxicities that occur. We don't want to make light of that. Um, you know, 
but we do want people to be able to understand uh, what people who manage poisonings think about when they hear about a specific presentation. So we want to make sure people can um, uh, hopefully be better able to identify some of these fatal poisonings and, and intervene faster to prevent that. So we're going to be talking about a couple of cases and we're going to read the case without uh, giving away sort of what the toxin is. We're going to read their vitals, their labs, all the things that we might talk about. We won't give away any antidotes. Um, and the other is going to do their best to talk about what it's making them think of and hopefully land on the correct poison. But sometimes you really can't do that till autopsy. So <laughs> you just never know. Um, and with that, uh, yeah, hopefully people learn some fun stuff. So do you, would you like me to read you a case first or would you like to read the case to me first? Uh, why don't you read a case first? Okay. I will read you a case. So I think we got some fun ones. This is a very short one. Probably something you've done in the sim lab, to be honest. So we'll kick it off with this. So a four-year-old female presents to the emergency department complaining of abdominal pain and vomiting. Kind of not able to take PO. In the ED, an abdominal ultrasound ruled out appendicitis. And she tolerated sips of water and was discharged home. 15 days later, she was transported to a regional trauma center in cardiac arrest. They were doing resuscitation. They got labs back that showed an H&H of very low, like four. Then there was some stuff done that I can't share. <laughs> there is imaging. Uh, she was taken to the OR, given blood products for a large presumed bleed. And she arrested in the operating room and died. Sad case. Um, it is. Yeah. Really sad. So I think there are some hints as to what's going on. Um, we can at least kind of come up with a differential. So just to kind of re-summarize, we have a, a, a child, a four-year-old, who presents with abdominal pain and vomiting. There's a lot of things that can cause that. And then is presumably well enough to be discharged from the emergency department followed by a 14-day essentially gap, you know, maybe may is sick during this time, maybe is not, but certainly by the end of this 14-day period becomes critically ill with a severe anemia, um, enough so that, that she does not survive. So hearing a history like this, I'm thinking about toxins that can produce either hemolysis or bleeding, uh, as well as over the course of this period of time, maybe a little bit of decreased erythropoiesis, although really it's not enough time, 14 days, to, to cause a meaningful anemia from that mechanism. So un unless, of course, this was a, a longer period of toxicity than the 14 days. So things that I would be thinking about to start would be caustics. Um, I'm thinking about lye, uh, muriatic acid, which is just hydrochloric acid, which can cause uh, abdominal pain and vomiting, as well as some degree of destruction to the GI tract, which could cause bleeding over the next few days if there was the, an initial recovery. I'm also going to be thinking about certain heavy metals, specifically iron, uh, which can cause these types of symptoms, can cause bleeding, um, can cause a, a period of kind of very serious illness, followed by partial recovery, followed by getting sick again. Um, I'm thinking about lead exposure as well as uh, both kind of acute and chronic. Um, and then um, also thinking 
about um, sadly uh, child abuse. So kind of repeated dosing of some other type of pharmaceutical that could cause the patient to become initially sick and then you know, essentially poison the child again later. And that, that could be just about anything that could cause a shock state or bleeding. Excellent. I'm trying to figure out how I could share more of this information without giving it away. But yeah, I mean, I think those are great, certainly things that inhibit like hematopoiesis, certainly things we see nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain in a 14-day tragic case is colchicine always jumps to mind too, but antimitotics. Uh, but it's really hard because we have 14 days between presentation and death. We have no idea what happened in between. I would say most likely what would happen here is immediately after going home, progressively worse abdominal pain, um, decreased PO progressing. Um, I can't, I'm actually very surprised to hear this took 14 days to represent. I could give you a hint. Mm. An abdominal x-ray in the emergency department would have immediately diagnosed this. Mm. I would also be thinking about with something like that would be a, a button battery um, as well as, you know, just sharp objects, but a button battery is something I'm really thinking about. That would be correct. So this is a tragic case of a lithium-ion button battery. So this is what I couldn't share with you. At the regional trauma center, a lithium button battery had lodged, was found lodged in the esophagus and had eroded through the esophagus into the aorta. This is one that just always blows my mind, uh, these little button batteries. And it's all about size and age. So every time I get a call from one of these, I really get nervous because of how much damage they can cause. Uh, and there's great button battery triage guidelines, I think put out by National Capital Poison Center. Uh, but it really has to do with the age of the person, whether or not uh, the size of the battery, the voltage of the battery. And um, once you can confirm it's past the uh, esophagus, it's usually not so much of an issue. But if that is caught in the esophagus, and you can usually see it on x-ray, you need to get it out really right away because it can cause burns within uh, two hours. So I don't know. Did, did you ever do a hot dog experiment with uh, the lithium ion batteries? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, there's a whole bunch of these YouTube videos of, of those. And it's something I've kind of shared with learners, students, and residents just to show how destructive these things can be, how quickly. Yeah. It's just wild. So anyone at home, if you want to see the damage of lithium ion battery can cause, just cut a slit in a hot dog and leave the battery in there. It could take a little while depending on your voltage, but you should see a, a hot dog starting to cook. Um, we actually recently got one of my colleagues, uh, Matt Stanton, who's been on the show before. He got some pig esophaguses from a butcher, and we actually did the, the experiment with those, and it's pretty wild. And let's say you have someone who adjusts a battery. Well, I just need to rush you to the ER and, and make sure it gets out, but I can't really do much in the interim. Until 2018, there was a really good paper that, unfortunately for these pigs it was really sad um they basically lodged button batteries in their esophagus and fed them either saline or honey every 15 minutes uh and then let them for an hour and then let them kind of walk around and then sacrifice the pigs and pulled up the esophagus looked at the damage and the ones who had honey really had decreased burn uh, uh i think it was both surface area and depth um, so that's at least one thing we have now, and that's something we're kind of adopting, and it's now in the National Capital Poison Center guideline, I think, too, uh, to give honey 10 mLs every 10 minutes if they're greater than 12 months. Um, and there's at least something you can do to prevent further damage, Richard. 
sounds like not that exciting, but it is, it's something you can do. So, I don't know. No, I think that's super important. Um, so where I, I trained, uh, my fellowship training was in Oregon and we were the poison center for the state of Oregon, which is a fairly large and relatively sparsely populated state, especially to compare to New York or you know the the dense uh, northeast cities and we also covered the entire state of alaska and one of the issues that we would come up would be with the issue of uh, medevac so if someone needed medical care to to actually get them to a to a tertiary hospital you know where where might you have a pediatric gastroenterologist it might be a six-hour flight away and so anything you could do to potentially temporize that or buy a little more time can make a huge difference potentially. Yeah. Oh, I can't imagine in Alaska, you got a ticking time bomb and, and cares many hours away. Mm-hmm. Well, I just wanted to bring that one up because I think people sometimes don't realize how dangerous those can be and uh, want to make sure that that gets out there. Certainly the, I think the public is not so aware. So uh, hopefully they can spread the word for us, but all right, you got one for me. I'm looking forward to getting stumped today. Sure. No okay. So I'll dive into it. So a 57-year-old man with Asperger syndrome presented complaining of diffuse pain and generalized malaise. Mentally, he was impaired with disjointed thoughts, labile mood, and disorganized slurred speech. He denied taking any over-the-counter or herbal medications, and his history was otherwise uninformative. A screening basic metabolic panel returned with a chloride level greater than 175 milliequivalents per liter, which is above the threshold of detection. Uh, and an anion gap of negative 55 milliequivalents per liter. To rule out laboratory error, a repeat BMP was performed and confirmed the initial value. Mm. All right. You're giving me easy ones. You just don't want to stump me. I appreciate it. (laughs) Good good topic for discussion. It is. So it could actually be potentially two things. I believe this is bromism. Uh, Bromide is in the same row not row column of the periodic table as chloride and people who take bromide uh which right now the most common source would be dextromethorphan hydrobromide could also be diquat dibromide but i really doubt they're having fun with diquat uh or you can actually just buy bromide salt still on the internet and some people do that uh it used to be used frequently for seizures and alcohol withdrawal they used to use it all the time I've actually had some cases of people who are trying to detox from alcohol and they will buy bromide salts online and take them. And then they come in with a negative anion gap and a chloride of 175. One other thing to consider here. So I'm looking based off of the the uh, description, labile mood, disorganized and slurred speech. You know, it seems like there's some neuro effects going on here. Lacking... Uh, certainly not an anti gut, but just this makes me think of one thing. Salicylates, depending on the actual lab that you're using, some of them will actually measure salicylate ion as chloride. I believe it's a specific spectrophotometric lab. I can't recall, but there are at least two case reports I know of of a patient coming in with a very serious salicylate level, no anion gap and actually a very elevated chloride because the lab was misreading the salicylate as chloride. Then when you actually check the salicylate, it's quite high. Uh, but given the discussion here, I'm leaning more towards bromism. Um, 
And what was their QTC? Do we have that? And maybe that'll lean me in on whether this was Dexamethorphan or... Oh, uh, we, we don't have an EKG available, but if it were available, I think it would be normal. Okay. All right. Well, then I'm going to go with uh, bromide salts that he bought on the internet. Yes, it's always the internet. And uh, <laughs> so you got it. it. This is bromide salt. Um, and what's kind of interesting, and this this again ties into just this kind of human beings are, are interesting people. And I, I am happy to say that this patient recovered completely and did well. Um, he was buying uh, salt from the Dead Sea. And wow. I didn't... I didn't know this until I read this case report, but the Dead Sea contains a very high concentration of bromide. And so the, the precipitated salt, uh, you know, if you ingest that in high doses or at high frequency, it can cause bromism. Uh, and so that's, that's how this patient got sick. That is so fascinating. So are there people out there who just like strain the Dead Sea and, and or boil off the water and just have a good time with, with dead sea salt there, yeah so it's it's sold commercially uh, it's probably not meant to be ingested i hope it's not marketed to be ingested but yeah you can buy dead sea salt and you can use it kind of like like epsom salts you know you can so soak in it make a bath out of it yeah. um some some believe it has healing properties maybe mystical healing properties uh it's, I, now i know why yeah yeah you know reputed to be good for the skin um but of course, if someone's ingesting it, that's a completely different story. Yes. All right. Well, no more Himalayan pink sea salt. I'm going dead sea. Go all the way with it. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, that's so interesting. Yeah, we've had a couple of cases that have needed dialysis to clear because they've been so obtunded. And uh, then you have the whole concept of bromide withdrawal. So it's bromide, right? In your, in your neurons the GABA channel or the GABA receptor basically is a ligand gated ion channel. It means you need a drug, the GABA A channel, you need a drug to open it up. And then once it opens up, chloride rushes into the cell and makes the cell more negative, less likely to depolarize. And thus you can get, you know, a negative excitatory effect. This is what alcohol does. This is what barbiturates, benzodiazepines, all sorts of things. They make the cells more negative, less likely to fire. Bromide acts like a chloride ion and can actually get into the cell and create this more negativity in the cell and reduce uh, synaptic firing. So it's, it really has the same effect as a GABA agonist. Um, I wonder if it affects GABA receptors. I assume it gets through the GABA channel, but kind of the withdrawal is another thought to, to consider. Um, That's a really cool thought. I never even thought about that. Something we see so rarely. Right. But I, you know, it could happen. I think in the 50s, it was more common. Another consideration for a high chloride could have been iodide. Yeah. Iodide itself, not iodine. And I don't know where you're going to really get that potassium iodide. But uh, if you take enough of that. SSKI. I wonder if people are stockpiling it and just with what's happening in the past right. year or so. Right. Yeah. Anyways, really great case. Wonderful. All right. I got another one for you. Cool. So uh, unfortunately, with the, it's tough when there's no exposure history, right? Like the button battery, we know as soon as like, oh, they're playing with a remote. Well, okay. I know exactly what to do. In the rare case where they show up and there's no exposure history, that's just, it's tough to figure out. Yeah. This one would also be tough to know without an exposure history. So I'm going to give you some. <laughs> A 37-year-old male 
injected the extraction from 400 somethings mixed with acetone into his left bicep muscle in a suicide attempt. The next morning, he developed respiratory difficulties, requested 911 medical assistance, and was brought to the emergency department. There's a history of IV drug use, depression, prior suicide attempts, apparently greater than 10. Um, his home medications include methadone, bupropion, hydroxazine, ritazapine, lamictal, and albuterol. On physical exam, the injection site was bruised, painful, and erythematous. His whole torso was erythematous, and he was hypoxic and complained of chest pain. His, uh, he was alert and oriented. His oxygen saturation was actually low, about 80% on room air placed on oxygen. His ECG was unremarked. In lab findings, his AST and ALT were slightly elevated. Nothing impressive other than an AST-ALT elevation. On the clinical course, so the patient presented to the emergency department with increased oxygen requirements. They threw him on oxygen. He sat in the hospital for about three days with twitching and flank pain. On day four, he was still alert and oriented, but he wasn't really eating or drinking. He started to develop coagulopathy as well as a platelet of 53. They initiated plasmapheresis for him. About six days in, his blood pressure decreased. He was having liver, kidney uh, failure, as well as you know uh, pulmonary failure, it appeared. Uh, he was intubated, started on norepi, CRT, paralyzed and sedated with midazolam and hydroformorphone, and then uh, still was on multisystem organ failure. And they eventually withdrew care on hospital day 13 from this person who ground up 400-somethings and objected them into his bicep. Hmm. That's that's a very unusual case. Um, it is, and just to clarify, yeah. I would not get this without mm -hmm. knowing exactly what they had taken. Sure. But I think the clue is there's 400 of something. Yeah. <laughs> Let's play it out. Let's let's talk about some some possibilities. So I think I think the four hundred of something is a big clue. Um, so things I'm thinking about. So we have one um, uh, parenteral exposure, which is a little different than a lot of our other toxic exposures, which, which tend to be uh, ingestions or dermal exposures. Um, it's presumably not a pharmaceutical. It's something that can dissolve in acetone. And it's something that over the next few days leads to multi-organ dysfunction. So starting with the pneumonitis, that's kind of could be anything that is injected into the vascular system and kind of disrupts you know, the lungs. That's going to be the first stop. And then over the next couple of days, really destroys or damages the liver, um, platelets, and coagulopathy. Hmm. So, short answer is I don't really know. Um, you know, I think I think there are many things that could do this that I would I would never think to inject into <laughs> into the bloodstream directly. You know, anything from uh, seeds, you know, things like rice, plant material, anything like that could contain a lot of particulates and things like that. It could be um, something that is uh, a plastic that is uh, soluble in acetone, but then when you mix it with an aqueous solution like blood, it starts to form little microprecipitates and forms little microambuli all over the body. Um, 
it could be uh, you know something else like um, a fat embolism you know this could be something that contains you know 400 packets of butter or something and then you now you this is a completely external fat embolism which gives you <laughs> low platelets and pneumonitis so um i don't i don't think i know the answer to this one but i'd, I'd love to hear what what happened here that's a great differential and i think right i mean that all, you inject something in your body you can get um, you know excipients that cause uh emboli in the lungs that are going to cause you know um there used to be something called cotton fever where mm -hmm. people would strain their hair on with cotton and then get febrile and have pulmonary you know issues from the cotton they were injecting so obviously that this is one problem with injecting tablets too right you're going to get all these excipients that are going to go to the lungs right all roads lead to the lungs at some point uh and they can get caught there and cause problems so this was somebody who had attempted suicide greater than 10 times i can give you i guess i'd give you a hint sure if I give you the real hint, like you would, so for obviously it, it seems like it's a multi-system effect, right? So it seems to affect everything. It's so hard to do this one without saying what will give it away. You probably researched online because it's a well-known poison that's been used in a lot of poisonings, some involving Russian dissidents. Huh. It is a, and it is a plant material. Interesting. Okay. So it's uh, interesting you say that. Now, let me ask you for one, yeah. one question. Is this plant material ever found in the tip of an umbrella? <laughs> yeah. It has been distilled down into the tip of an umbrella before. Okay. Um, interesting. So, unfortunately, a, a creative approach to a suicide attempt uh, for the, this individual who was able to complete this suicide attempt. Um, so, what you're describing is uh, ricin. And uh, that's uh, uh, coming from castor beans. And um, I think the, the amount of ricin in 400 castor beans is certainly will do the trick if it was appropriately extracted. That would be correct. So you could see kind of some of those initial effects of just kind of particulate matter being injected, followed by uh, essentially RNA inhibition over the next few days. You hear about it every year. I see reports about it every year. I think it suffers from the fact that it, it's such a well-known poison kind of in the media. Wikipedia has a whole list of ricin-related events that have occurred. But they have, um, you know, Georgi Markov uh, in 1978. He was a writer uh, who, I believe, I don't know if they figured out exactly who, but I think that is pinned on Russia. Um, I, you know, I think he was writing some things that were not so great about their regime. And talks are here. To correct Ryan's naturally failing human brain, Markov was critical on Bulgaria, not Russia. However, the Soviet KGB was suspected to be involved in the assassination. Uh, somebody came in with an umbrella that had a pellet in the tip of it and either shot him or poked him in the leg with the umbrella. And then a few days later, he wound up hospitalized multi-system organ failure uh, and died because there was a poison ricin pellet in the umbrella. Uh, it's also used in Breaking Bad. Walter White uses it to, he tries to, he extracts uh, from the castor bean ricin to try to kill Tuco Salamaca when he's trapped in like episode two or something. And then uh, he also uses it again in the future of the poison. I think some family members, of I can't remember the details, but it's well known as a poison. And because of that, people tend to ingest it, unfortunately, in self-harm. So, um, but there is a slight benefit here. So ricin, 
when taken orally in seed form, you know, people, if they are trying to harm themselves, they just take a few seeds. Luckily, the seed tends to protect absorption of ricin, so you don't see much if they just swallow it. So um, in those cases, we usually see pretty minimal symptoms, which is nice. So they know it's bad and scary and they take it, but luckily, uh, if they're not chewing the seed or grinding it up, they're not likely to absorb a lot. But then on the other side of the spectrum, people who know that ricin, um, you know, has these effects, they will grind it up and and do things like this, where they will inject it into their bicep. So I've had a number of cases of ricin, and it's interesting. It's usually a couple of seeds that are ground up, and it just causes diffuse diarrhea for like eight hours. Because it it destroys the GI cells, but it's not well absorbed orally. I've also had cases where people are using it for weight loss because of that. So they'll make castor bean smoothies and ingest that so that they can lose a lot of water weight via the GI tract, which I don't know if is a great idea. Uh, And for the listeners, ricin is really an interesting poison. I wanted to just walk through real quick its mechanism because I think it's so fascinating. So it ricin inhibits protein synthesis. And so when you make a protein, right, you have your DNA, which is like the code. And then you take a copy of that code that's called messenger RNA. And that RNA leaves the nucleus and goes out and gets grabbed by something called a ribosome. And the ribosome is this really cool cellular machine. It's both protein. It's protein, which is made of amino acid, but it's also composed of nucleotides, which are the things that make up DNA and RNA. So it's part protein, part nucleotide, full machine. Uh, And ribosomes grab that messenger RNA and they read the code. It's like, okay, if you have three base pairs, it's like AGG. It's like, okay, I need this amino acid and I'll add it on. Uh, So then tRNA goes and grabs the amino acid and adds it. But then it has to move to the next set of base pairs. So the ribosome has to move along the RNA, the mRNA. And the way it does that, it's an energy process, right? You need to have energy to move. So it does that by cleaving a, uh, it does that using GTP, not ATP, but GTP, guanine triphosphate, I believe is that what that stands for. And it cleaves a phosphate using something called the saracen ricin loop which is this big loop of RNA that's preserved across almost all living things. So every living thing that produces protein seems to have this, it's called the SRL, saracen ricin loop, that is responsible for generating the energy that helps the ribosome move along the mRNA. And this is smart of the castor bean, which doesn't want to be eaten by anything, that it generates a poison that targets all you know something that's preserved among all living organisms but what ricin does is basically there's this a chain on the ricin it's a big protein and there's this chain on it that cleaves an adenine molecule out of this rna loop and apparently this was where it got too complicated for me something about pi bonds but when the adenine gets cleaved the entire saracen ricin loop collapses and the ribosome can no longer move forward on mrna so it hearts halts transcription of proteins, or sorry, not transcription, it halts 
protein synthesis at translation. The ribosome can't move, it's paralyzed. And then all of a sudden you got no proteins, your cells die. But all of your cells need to produce proteins, right? So this affects basically every organ system. Although you don't see a lot of neurotoxicity until later. But I just thought that was really interesting. And then apparently ricin or the castor bean is so smart that it, uh, ricin has a lot of lysine in it, which apparently keeps it from getting tagged uh, with ubiquitin. Uh, that's how the cell basically tags it for digestion because it has a high lysine content. And I guess it's resistant to that. So it tends to sit around in the cell for a long time because it doesn't get chewed up by proteasomes. So really interesting, uh, a classic poison. One, a lot of people know about, uh, gets used in a lot of ways. Fortunately, all the cases I've ever dealt with just have led to diarrhea, not good diarrhea, very painful, bloody painful. But that's what we get. Oh, and then of course, there's the rosary pea. We talk a lot about castor bean, ricinus communist, but there's also the rosary pea, which contains abrin. And that has, it's another toxalbumin that will do the same thing. And for everyone listening recently, I looked that up. That is why that happens to be at the forefront of my mind. It's not knowledge that I carry at all times in my brain. Although now maybe I will. I don't know. Super fun. And that was a big tirade. Any other comments on rice? And no, that was that was really cool. And I, I didn't I didn't know that uh, that kind of granularity of the biochem. I you know I obviously how it interacts with ribosomes, but to that degree and that kind of preserved motif, that was really cool to hear about. Yeah, isn't that neat? Yeah. All right, you got one for me. Yeah, this one um, it's written in a way that I'm I'm gonna kind of paraphrase it a little bit rather than read it directly from the case report, just because I think it'll be a little difficult if I just read it off the page. Um, so this is a case of a 19-year-old who was um, exercising, let's say, questionable judgment uh, in college with friends. And they were challenging each other to, uh, to do a certain activity that would be medically dangerous. And so the patient in question um, performed this activity and then within a couple of hours became unresponsive, uh, was brought to the emergency department where he was found to be in a comatose state, completely unresponsive with seizure-like activity. And this was now two hours after, after this activity. Um, the, the ER team was aware of what occurred and so they started resuscitation. Now, I don't think I've given you enough to make a diagnosis, but maybe you could talk about some initial thoughts and then I'll give you sure. some more information. Well, when I think of 19-year-olds challenging each other, two things come to mind. Putting Tide Pods on pizza, which I guess was the thing, uh, as well as the Benadryl challenge, uh, trying to take as much Benadryl as you can. Two hours... Yeah, if you take a lot, I mean, Benadryl slows your GI system so you can have protracted symptoms. But if you take enough, it's going to absorb <clears throat> pretty fast as well. Uh, other things, I'm thinking, it doesn't sound like the ice bucket challenge to me. I don't think we're there. Uh, I, I, I'm thinking, um, obviously, a 19-year-old, just alcohol, challenging someone to drink as much alcohol as they could in a you know 30-second period. But... Uh, or a 30 minute period. Uh, I wouldn't expect them to be seizing from that unless they somehow induce like a volume related hyponatremia, but I really doubt it. Like, my, 
Is it a physical challenge? <laughs> it's an ingestion challenge. And, and I, okay. I think everything you're saying is fantastic because, you you know, we're thinking about, you know, how to tie in this clinical medical presentation with, you know, what's what's going on in the world and the what social history. Social uh, this has got to be yeah. the NyQuil chicken challenge. <laughs> chicken and NyQuil. I'm so glad that I never had a case of that really happening personally. I I, I don't know any toxicologists who have. I hope it never did. Um, maybe just to bring your listeners up, I think many may be familiar, but recently there was a, a large press release warning the public not to boil chicken in NyQuil and then eat it. Um, and I think a lot of us who practice clinically started just talking with each other and saying, have you have you seen this? I mean, has this occurred? Um, I have not had a case. I don't oh. know anyone who's had a case. So I, I saw another news article about the FDA warning about the NyQuil chicken challenge. It was basically like FDA's warning about the NyQuil chicken challenge alerts basically everyone about the NyQuil chicken challenge yeah. <laughs> that it even exists. So it was kind of like a funny equipose. Like, did that help or hurt in this scenario? Because now more people yeah. know about it. I don't but people... <laughs> It's, I don't know if anyone really did it except that one video, but uh, certainly something to be worried about because I continue to be astounded by the challenges that, that go on. But okay, so I guess if I was going to peg on something here, I'd probably go with uh, Benadryl, although you know it almost sounds Teslon pearly, depending on how quickly they dropped, but unresponsive seizing uh, two, you know, two hours after. But anyways, any more info I can glean here, labs, vitals, anything? Yeah, let me give you some more information. And I think these are all great thoughts. And as, as I mentioned, I don't think there's enough here to make a diagnosis without a history. Uh, but let me let me tell you some of the labs. So there's one particular lab which uh, really kind of cinches it. And that's uh, that the patient's sodium concentration peaked at 196 millimoles mm. per liter. Were they recently at a Chinese food restaurant? I believe so. Okay, this is a uh, this is a classic tox case that I look at all the time, just because it's so fascinating. I'm gonna bet. Well, all right. So, what's a sodium related seizure? I'm gonna take that as a win. Uh, this is probably someone who drank a liter of soy sauce, or maybe it was a gallon. I don't actually know. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, you got it. This so yeah. soy sauce. Yeah. So unfortunately, um, this patient, you know, got really sick, but fortunately they survived and did, did well. And we'll talk maybe in a bit about how, how the team saved them. Usually if someone is, uh, unfortunately people do drink, you know, large quantities of soy sauce in these kind of challenges to kind of impress friends and uh, be goofy. Um, and if, they absorb it, yeah, it can be really dangerous and life-threatening. Uh, fortunately, what usually happens is immediate vomiting. Um, and if you're willing to go down a very unpleasant YouTube rabbit hole, there are videos of people attempting the soy sauce challenge and then immediately vomiting large quantities of soy sauce. Dangerous and disgusting, but the vomiting is really protective in these cases. Um, the issue becomes when, when they person does not vomit and they absorb all the sodium chloride. So what the team did in this case was essentially resuscitate the patient very rapidly with six liters of free water, presumably D5. Wow. And that would be in an attempt to essentially dilute that 
acute hypernatremia back into the normal or near normal range. And this patient did well. They woke up and they had no uh, neurological sequelae. That's amazing. Oh, terrifying. Yeah. yeah, just don't drink a gallon of anything. There's so many gallon challenges. Gallon of water, that's yeah. going to cause hyponatremia. There's deaths from you know drinking too much water too fast. Gallon of milk is a real challenge. I know of people from you know school growing up who did that. I think that's a little more protective because you got proteins and fats in there to slow down absorption and you just can't drink as much. But yeah, yeah. And as a rule of thumb, a gallon of anything is rapidly poor. Not a space it out, space it out, space it out. Safer that way. Yeah. Uh, I, I'd say this, and yet I, as a youth, was once challenged to drink a 20 ounce glass of maple syrup. And I did not finish it. <laughs> but, but not not even for a moment did I think, could this be negatively impactful? Yeah. So we don't all make the best decisions. Really great. All right. Uh, do you, you want to do another one? I have maybe one more fun one. Sure. Yeah. I'd love to. All right. So I just found when I was reading this one, I was like, this is just so interesting. So, okay. A 22-year-old professional gardener was brought to the hospital for detoxification from chronic cannabis use. The patient stayed in the hospital for three weeks until going to a different hospital. Not that important. On arrival to the new hospital, the patient announced his intention to commit suicide using poisonous plants. The following days, the patient was allowed into the hospital garden. Not sure that was the best move, given what they had announced. Uh, nurses entering his room noted plant material strewn about. The plant material looked similar to pine needles. They were flat green needles with seed cones. And some of the seed cones had berries around them, I guess. But it's not a great description. I could give you a picture if you want. You want a picture? I, I think I know this one. Okay. All right. All right. I think I know this one. Um, so kind of taking a step back, uh, you know, a differential diagnosis of something that could, a plant that could kill someone that might be decorative, that might be, might be just casually planted in a hospital garden. So things I'm thinking about uh, would include potentially rhododendron. You know, this is something that can have uh, gryanotoxin, which is a sodium channel opener. Uh, very beautiful. Problem with it is these are thick, waxy leaves. It's really not functionally possible to eat enough of that to get thick. There's just these hard, tough leaves. It's just kind of not going to happen. Um, Foxglove Classic, gorgeous, beautiful flowers. They might be available, but I think a lot of people recognize those as toxic. Um, in the autumn, autumn crocuses is uh, will be just kind of around. Those contain colchicine. So that's something that could develop, cause toxicity. But I think what this patient likely took was you, um, and that contains uh, taxines. You, yeah, <laughs> um, exactly, yeah. And that's something that it's it's a decorative bush. It's it's kind of it it looks like um, a, a conifer. The, the leaves, you know, they are, they look like pine needles, and uh, it contains these uh, toxins that are sodium and calcium channel closers, and they can cause cardiac dysrhythmias and death. So that's that would be my my thought. All right, let's go through the final course, and I'll let you nail down. So, 
Later that evening, after finding these flat green leaf needles and seed cones, uh, the patient endorsed nausea and abdominal pain. And then a few hours later, a rapid response was called for bradycardia and hypotension. A bedside echo showed, you know, severely depressed uh, cardiogenic shock, depressed ejection fraction. He had shortness of breath. They were beginning resuscitation when he progressed to a wide QRS rhythm and lost pulses. And despite defibrillation, ACLS, and lidocaine, and epi, ROSC was unable to be achieved. So, final answer? It, it, it sure sounds like taxes. <laughs> that is correct. The U. I'm glad my description was enough to describe what it sounded like, <laughs> what it looked like. Yeah. It's always tough. But yeah, the U tree, really a fascinating... Um, uh, plant and what I find so interesting about it. So the yew tree, the Pacific yew, is actually where we get paclitaxel, the chemotherapy from, which a lot of people would associate with hematologic toxicities. It's a cell cycle specific inhibitor of cell replication. Um, so most people, when you think of yew, if you happen to know that tidbit, you're like, oh yeah, this is probably a heme toxin. But no, you die long before that could occur. So. Um, Taxane A and B, just like you said, calcium and sodium channel blockers, uh, they can cause bradycardia, cardiogenic shock, wide complex QRSs, and decreased cardiac contractility. contractility. And that was a, just an interesting case. I was like, that was one of the forensic ones where they have a very brief description of what happens. And then they're like, and then we detected taxane in the blood, um, which they did. Uh, but it's a very uh, interesting and scary toxin. We've had it couple of cases over the years but great great job on those that was fun okay so now we're going to move on to our next questions which are toxicologists versus the internet these are questions sourced from reddit.com slash r slash ask drugs and there's a lot of interesting questions on here and many of them have good forays into discussing some toxicology concepts so uh, we're going to do our best to answer some of these, looking at it through the lens of toxicology and, and kind of what we would think about if this was a patient maybe presented to the ED or how these things can interact with people out in the world. Uh, so did you want to kick off? I guess I just asked the last case. Do you want to ask a, a question? I'll do my best to muse about it. Sure. Yeah. Um, and this is um, a, a question that I, I found on ask drugs and it's loosely inspired by the conversation that you and emily had on your most recent episode about the meth bong water uh it's not directly related but there's a biochem tie-in here so let me read it to you um i have a jar of isopropyl alcohol that's been through an extraction process i just have to finish it off by evaporating the alcohol but i wanted to know if it was possible to add any more thc into it before the evap like keef buds etc and so this individual seems to be asking for advice about the home processing and purification of thc interesting now i guess i don't know what they did but yeah this is sort of a question about solvents you know there's some fun physical chemistry to it right so isopropyl alcohol is relatively it's three carbons with a single hydroxyl group on it so it's I guess I don't actually know too much about its aqueous versus lipid solubility. I would think the hydroxyl group is going to add some polarity to it. 
but it's probably maybe a little bit more because of the three carbons, the lipophilic solvent. Uh, and I really, I really don't know. I know you can use it to dissolve natural, um, you know, if it's lipophilic, that's where you get uncharged compounds. So those are the free base compounds that we've talked about before. Um, so obviously, I doubt it's the most lipophilic. Let's take the example of a phospholipid bilayer, which is the fat part of your cell, the cell membrane, right? The cell membrane has a phospho, a phosphate group in the front, which contains a phosphorus and a bunch of hydroxyls. And those hydroxyls all carry some polarity with them. And polar molecules like to interact with other polar molecules. Negatives like to interact with positives. So things like water, where you have a big electron-hungry oxygen stealing electrons from hydrogen and becoming very negative, it's water is going to interact uh, with positively charged things um, very well. Uh, so this is why we consider water a really great solvent for charged molecules, right? But if you have an uncharged molecule, it doesn't want to interact with a lot of uh, charged things. And that is better off in something where there's a nice equal electron distribution, things like long carbon chains, which are lipophilic. And that lipophilic, like long carbon chains, like the uh, nonpolar side of your phospholipid bilayer, which is the lipid layer, right? So fats are solvents that can dissolve fats and non-charged things. And water or other polar solvents, which I actually think isopropyl would be a little polar given the hydroxyl head, uh, are going to dissolve more charged solvents. This is really taking me back to pharmacies. In this case, he's got isopropyl alcohol. He's probably going to evaporate that all away. You can smell isopropyl alcohol when you walk into a room because it's so volatile, it, it'll evaporate very quickly. Your solvent will evaporate. And then you're left with just the solid of whatever you dissolved in that solution. And now he's trying to be left with large amounts of THC that is kind of, I guess, I don't know if it's crystallized or the solid form there. Um, or if you're like one of our guests of the show, you would be evaporating uh, water to be left with lidocaine crystals uh, at, at the end. So this is, definitely ties in. I don't have really a great answer for this guy, but isopropyl is, I guess it's easy to evaporate. I don't know if it's lipophilic enough to grab THC, which is a super lipophilic molecule. I mean, tons of uh, heterocyclic carbon groups that tends to add a lot of lipophilicity but i don't know all right what, what do you think I, I just rambled about that i'm not sure no I, th I think those are kind of amazing thoughts and get get to kind of what you know is is the attempt here is to essentially extract and purify this thc and i think you explained the organic chemistry of it very well you know essentially you you dissolve it in this solvent and evaporate off the solvent leaving a more purified thc concentrate and what I think can potentially get people into trouble is one with an aqueous solution that can't explode, but something like <laughs> isopropanol probably won't, but could, you know, so if someone were say impatient and wanted this isopropanol to evaporate more quickly, not recommending this, but they could heat it. And what happens when you heat an organic solvent in an uncontrolled situation, like, you know, your stovetop, a stray spark can ignite all that isopropyl vapor and lead to a, a fire or an explosion. And something similar that we see, uh, 
in, in various kind of, let's call them labs across the country is, I want to even say the successor to the meth lab expo explosion, <laughs> which is the butane hash oil explosion. Uh, because in an attempt to purify THC, uh, some people will use butane, which is you know, lighter fluid, right? That's uh, gas under pressure becomes a liquid and it's a it's a good solvent for thc and when you release the pressure it evaporates off leaving purified thc and you know if you have large quantities of butane in a less than perfect you know in storage environment and less than perfect laboratory conditions that can be really dangerous and it's essentially uh you know a, an apartment-sized bomb and so there have <laughs> been these uh, just explosive you know, apartments and hotel rooms across the country related to that. That is just wild. I mean, it makes perfect sense. The the kind of the the lower tech and probably safer concept here is really just pot brownies. So if, <laughs> yes, anyone who's attempted to make pot brownies knows, you know, you, if you if you heat the cannabis leaf in water, it doesn't extract THC at all. Um, it has to be extracted into into some kind of organic solvent. So something that you can eat. So typically it's going to be butter or oil. And so that's not going to end up being evaporated. It'll just be an ingredient in those brownies, but it's, it's kind of from an organic camp point of view, it's kind of the same idea. Right. Absolutely. Uh, question for you. Yeah. What weighs more a pound of water or a pound of butane? Ah, great question. On this planet, they're the same. Well, actually, you'd think that, but butane is lighter fluid. Oh, that was good. <laughs> that was good. Uh, I I, that, that was I good. read that the other day, and I just yeah. laughed so much. I was like, I can't not say that right now. This is the perfect time. <laughs> That's amazing. But, yes. Okay. Wonderful. On to another question. So, how about... Oh, there were so many good ones. There was a great one about can paracetamol get you high? I don't think we have time to dive into it, but because they Googled and they found that acetaminophen ex reduces negative emotions. Uh, so they were extrapolating that into um, can you take that to have positive emotion? But the whole acetaminophen and emotional aspect was really interesting because I've actually read some studies on this. And it has to do with the fact that Humans are such social animals, right? We, we feel physical pain, but we also feel uh, kind of emotional pain of like rejection, right? That's a negative emotion, just like pain can be a negative feeling or so. They're both negative feelings. And there's actually some pretty interesting studies that acetaminophen not only reduces nociceptive pain or physical pain, but it also reduces the severity of uh, negative feelings related in a scenario where someone is experimentally rejected. So I think that's kind of cool. It's uh, I guess we all, everything we experience winds up, you know, it's all experienced through the brain for the most part. So not that surprising that it can have effects on non-physical things. I can't remember where I read that. I think it was um, a book called moral animal about evolutionary biology by Robert Wright. Okay. Well, here's, here's one. I don't know. This isn't even a great question, but yeah. So this is a question about clonidine. They say, clonidine questions, low heart rate while sleeping. I was prescribed clonidine for general anxiety disorder and panic attacks and have been taking a quarter of a 0.1 milligram tablet twice a day. 
I'd like to move up to half of one because they're really hard to cut into quarters. <laughs> but I feel it might be difficult because I've been having my heart rate dip down into the 52 beats per minute while I'm sleeping, which I know isn't dangerous, but my heart rate normally only gets down to 55 to 58. And I'm concerned that moving up to the increased dose will drop my heart rate even lower. And I would like to wake up tomorrow. So they're concerned about clonidine. I don't, what, what do you think? Can clonidine cause bradycardia? Maybe we can talk about that. Sure. Uh, that's an interesting question. And I think, I think uh, any, any concern about adverse drug effect uh, should definitely be brought up with the the prescriber or the pharmacist just to answer all these questions, just to make sure that the source of information is high quality. Right. Um, this, is, this is not medical <laughs> advice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to clarify, this is not even related to this person's specific question. <laughs> right. Yeah, I absolutely agree. This is kind of a, a general kind of rant on, on the topic of clonidine and, and bradycardia. So, so I guess kind of um, just backing up, what does clonidine do? And then what does, what do we expect it to do at these doses? And, you know, the basis of this question. So clonidine is an alpha-2 adrenergic receptor agonist. Uh, these receptors are predominantly in the brain and control the outflow of the sympathetic nervous system tone. And so the intended effect of clonidine is to decrease heart rate, decrease blood pressure, and potentially in certain cases, um, quell a little bit of anxiety. And we see drugs with the same mechanism of action actually used as anesthetic. So for example, dexmedetomidine, which is an ICU sedation drug, and it can be used uh, also as a sedative for dogs. My my friend's dog takes it when there are fireworks out. Shout out to Violet, <laughs> the dog. Is it oral? It's oral, yeah. It, well, it's buckle. So they'll, they'll oh, put okay. it on, yeah. Yeah. You know, the inside of the dog's mouth. Um, and also what we're seeing more recently across the US uh, of xylazine exposure. So these are all drugs in the same same family, same mechanism of action. Now, kind of coming back to the dose, and uh, Ryan, as a, as a clinical pharmacist, I think you can probably talk about this more precisely than I can, but a quarter of a 0.1 tablet, 0.1 milligram tablet is a very, very low dose. Um, and not to say that it would have no effect, but um, you know, decreasing the heart rate from 55 to 52 beats per minute at night sounds about what I might expect. That's, for context, not a huge change. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where I, I land on it. It's interesting. Maybe they could sleep with an Apple Watch on and you know have it alert yeah. them when they drop low. I, I chose this question. Clonidine is such an interesting, all these alpha-2 agonists. It's a really fascinating drug. Um, I always love teaching learners how it's like one of the big opioid mimics. Now it's in opioids, so it doesn't really matter. But but yeah, it can also cause meiosis, prodipnea, sedation, all that kind of stuff. So, okay, here's the real reason I asked this question. I'm just curious if you've had a similar experience. Maybe this is just me. We get these clonidine overdoses. You know, one of the things we like to see before we feel more comfortable about discharging somebody who's overdosed is that their vital signs have returned to normal because after an acute ingestion, you know, once the effects are gone, everything should resolve unless there's been some kind of a, you know, permanent injury, but largely your vital signs should return to normal. I get these clonidine ingestions. It's usually in young kids, not young, but you know, teenage with like athletic bradycardia at baseline. I swear 
they end up with heart rates in the 30s while they're sleeping after a clonidine ingestion. And obviously they're asymptomatic, so it's not that big of a deal, but it just causes this conundrum. How long do you let someone sleep in a hospital because their heart rate's 30 when they're totally asymptomatic? But then at the same time, it's like, well, I don't know if I want to send you home if you're dipping to the 30s it just i don't have you any similar experience i feel sometimes i need to be there for other reasons anyways but i just tend to see prolonged bradycardia with this usually sleep related but i don't anything like that on your side um not that i've noted to be honest with i Maybe guess it's just me yeah. i don't know <laughs> no I'm, I'm sure it's i'm sure it's something that other people have observed too I guess from a clinical standpoint, it's a it's a cop out answer, but I guess I would say you won't be discharging them in the middle of the night anyway. That's so true. You'll, you'll go by their waking vitals, presumably. That's true. Get them up, walk them around, have them jog yeah. down the hallway, and then... yeah. give them a cup of coffee. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, bradycardia very common with clonidine, so not so much of a surprise that uh, he's having that kind of a side effect. Do you want to do another question? We could. Let me see. I do. Let me see if it's a good one. So this is a Reddit user who's asking a question, and it's not quite phrased as a question, but the request is tips on things you can do to speed up the process of getting normal-sized pupils after opiates. Uh, and this Reddit user is saying that they were invited to family member's house, and they're on buprenorphine. And they don't want to have small pupils because the family may detect that they're under the influence of opioids. Well, very interesting. So this gets into a good discussion about the effectors of the pupillary size. And obviously, there's a lot of things that can do that. You know, you have uh, two things that can cause meiotic pupils opioids and cholinergics, which are both going to narrow the pupil size. And then you have some things that can cause mydriatic pupils, which would be anticholinergics, kind of makes sense, and then stimulants uh, or sympathomimetics. Um, I kind of think of it like if you're running from a bear, you need like those wide pupils so you can see every possible you know obstacle in front of you. Um, you know, but it is interesting because they work at different sites. The sympathomimetics use alpha adrenergic agonism to widen pupils. The cholinergics use acetylcholine to induce smooth muscle contraction that leads to narrowing of the pupil. But then opioids actually work at a higher up center, something called the, I'm just going to call it the EW nucleus. I think it's the Unique Westfall? That's wrong. <laughs> but it's the EW. Unique Westfall? Yeah. Uni yeah, there we go. The Unique Westfall. And they are a higher up input. So I guess it's a question. If I have opioids on board, can I use a lower input? Like, can I just add some atropine eye drops <laughs> to my eyes and widen the pupils? Uh, which actually probably would work, is my guess, because, you know, the EW nucleus is kind of a taking off the brakes effect. Um, when you use opioids, they inhibit the EW nucleus. I, there's a great post on this by uh, Dr. Justin Corcoran called Tox Pupils, well, written with that goes over this well. But the, the answer is yes, polypharmacy can change your pupillary size. Um, I think if you're on buprenorphine for substance use disorder, I'm really sorry you have to hide that. Uh, just 
you know, you're making good harm reduction decisions. So don't be dissuaded. But uh, I don't know. Maybe you can clarify the muck I just made of this topic, <laughs> Dr. Blumenberg. No, I, I think I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there. You know, we have these all these different mechanisms, and so from a just a you know, biomedical standpoint, yeah, you can make the pupils larger with something like an anticholinergic. You know, atropine being classic that can that can enlarge the pupils in someone who has no brainstem reflexes at all, um, and then. Uh, another one that we see kind of in the emergency department more often is the multiple variations on what's usually called a speedball. So someone takes a stimulant and an opioid at the same time, or a stimulant and a sedative at the same time. Um, the classic speedball being heroin and cocaine. So that could be someone who potentially would have some degree of opioid toxicity, but might have some peripheral signs of um, sympathetic activation like medriasis or diaphoresis, sweating. Um, there are certain uh, substances out there that might in a single molecule have both sympathomimetic and uh, sedating qualities, so not opioid, but sedating. Uh, one that I think of is fenibut, which is, uh, you know, if you look at the chemical structure of it, it has a motif that looks like GHB. And so it has a very kind of CNS depressant quality to it, but it also is a uh, phenethylamine. And so it also has some stimulating properties. So, so yes, the short answer is you can um, increase the pupil size, but I, I just want to echo, Ryan, what you said, which is um, congratulations on making a really good life decision in, in the harm reduction standpoint. Um, and it is unfortunate that that has to be hidden. Ah, uh, good old Fanny Butte. I got so much flack from Dr. Emily Kiernan for that episode I made where I called it Fenny Butt over and over. I understand, yeah, it's based off of the, you know, gamma aminobutyric acid, but Fenny Butt just rolls off the tongue. There's a lot of these in the world, right? You got barbiturates, barbiturate, bupropion, bupropion. There's so many different. I know, I know the right way. I know why you say it, but it just. One of the most intelligent clinicians I've ever worked with pronounced ibuprofen ibuprofen <laughs> so you know the the content the meaning of what he said was carried over there, there were no meta errors related to it it's a group effort we all you yeah know, we all we're all humans we're all doing our best well that was a, a wonderful explanation and anytime we can bring fenny but fenny boot up <laughs> that's really great and you know i wanted to run back that case that i i talked about the ricin case Mm -hmm. There was something that if I was being read that case, I would have not, I would have gotten it completely wrong and I would have guessed the exact wrong thing. And I know what I would have guessed. It would have been, so as a patient, they injected something in their bicep and developed twitching. Mm. And that's probably what I would have anchored on. And then they have kind of multi-system myth. It wasn't even that bad of organ failure. It was like a little liver sweat and crat and bumped a couple of days later. But twitching and injection of non-pharmaceutical substances makes me think, okay, it could be like strychnine, but I doubt it's that. Uh, wasping? I don't know if you've um, seen this. This is where people actually inject pyrethroid insecticides because they have stimulant-like effects. And uh, it leads to some twitching. And I've recently... my So my residents 
we were doing kind of a little form of the stump the talks that we do. And somebody got me on wasping recently because it's very nonspecific. The only thing you can pick up on is I'm injecting a, a bunch of <laughs> insecticide. But wow. that would be yeah. another thing on the differential, I think, is uh, if it weren't for the 400 bean thing, I, that would, kind of sounds like wasping to me. Have you heard of wasping? It was no, I haven't. I've, I've never heard of that, but um, it's hard to be surprised at this point by just right. what people do. Always new things coming up. So just yeah. got to keep an open mind, I guess. Uh, well, this has been absolutely wonderful. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show, sharing your sage talks wisdom and all the cool talks and you know uh, educational things that you're involved in. Uh I guess any final wor- final words you'd like to share? Any last thoughts about talks or anything we talked about? No, I, I just it's uh, so fun going through these cases and kind of picking them apart, both up and down from the clinical to the biochem and and back. Uh, so thank you for having me. Thrilled you joined the show. It's been really really wonderful. Thanks for sharing your talks museum with us and uh, all of your other really impressive toxicology uh, initiatives. So everyone should check out. Dr. Blumenberg's podcast, Toxic History. Check out his med simulator as well as Tox Runner to get yourself up to speed on various uh, toxicology topics. And uh, we appreciate you being on. Thanks, Ryan. That'll wrap it up for today's show. I hope you had fun listening to myself and Dr. Blumenberg opine about toxicology subjects. If you like what you're listening to, give us a follow wherever you listen to podcasts. And please leave us a review. It helps us reach other listeners who are interested in learning about toxicology. You can follow the show on social media, on Twitter at Lab Poison, myself at EMPoisonPharmD. We have a Facebook, The Poison Lab, and an Instagram, Tox underscore Talk. As always, you can go to our website, www.thepoisonlab.com, for all free medical games, resources, and podcast episodes. Be sure to check out Dr. Blumenberg's initiatives as well, Tox Runner, Toxic History, and the MedSim Studio. Don't forget, you can reach out to the show anytime at TalksTalk1 at gmail.com. That's T-O-X-T-A-L-K-1 at gmail.com. We'll be posting teasers for upcoming episodes and maybe asking for listener guesses. So send your guesses in if you want to take part in the next episodes, or reach out if you have any suggestions about the show. That'll do it for today. Thanks for listening, and I hope we can see you next time. Hey, Toxo, can you play us out? The information on this show is for educational purposes only and should not be interpreted as medical advice or treatment recommendations. Contact your doctor for health questions or call your local poison center at 1-800-222-1222. The opinions expressed on this show do not represent those of our employers. This show is poorly written and shoddily produced by Ryan Feldman. Don't forget to give it a share with your nerdy friends. Cheerio mates. See you next time.